Hey everybody, welcome back to Lawless Amateur Whining. My name is Laura, and I wanted to apologize first of all for recording this a few days later than I normally record, but um, there was some family stuff that came up, and I wasn't actually able to record on my normal day, so this is a few days late. Um, <laughs> it actually took me a little bit. I had to sort of re-go through everything that I was going to talk about today and get it fresh in my mind again. I I sort of, um, like the morning that I record, I read over everything and I sort of amp myself up to remember all of my talking points. And then like now a couple of days have gone by and I was like, wait, what was I going to talk about? Okay. So, um, I have a few things. It's sort of mixed in because um, I usually start counting stuff from the weekend that I'm going to talk about next week. And then I watch two new movies this weekend. But I'm going to talk about those on my next podcast so that I can focus on um, things that I watched last week that I really wanted to talk about. So um, there's an ongoing docuseries that I've been watching, uh, The Secrets of the Playboy Mansion. And um, so that's on A&E. And... Uh, it's it's really bananas. Uh, and it's weird, like, even though they talk about a lot of shocking things, I, I find that I'm not surprised at any of them. And it's got a lot of women who worked for the company who, you know, they sort of quote unquote cry because of all the things that they saw and covered up. But there aren't a lot of real tears that are coming from their face. Um, I mean, no judgment, whatever. This was in the 70s that they were, you know, covering up sexual assaults and, you know, horrible things that were going on. But, you know, it it doesn't necessarily seem like, like, now, years later, now they're stressed and upset and moved by the situation. But I, I don't know if that's necessarily because of the culture now is so much different than it was in the 70s. I mean... You think back to <laughs> the days where there were Playboy clubs everywhere and men just ran amok and did whatever they wanted. And there were, <clears throat> excuse me, there were rules, right, in the clubs. Like you couldn't touch the bunnies. It was like a strip club, right? You can't touch them. You can just look at them. But how often do they actually get touched because people are getting drunk and they don't care or they're rich and they don't care or they know nothing's going to happen to them. So there's a lot of stories that are told and each episode you have the sort of what the fuck sort of thing. But is any of it really shocking? I mean, am I shocked that sexual assaults happened at the Playboy Mansion? No. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a difficult watch as far as learning about things that happen to real people and knowing that those people have had to live with what happened to them for uh, 40, 50 years now. Uh, and how Hugh Hefner was able to get away with it literally his entire life. Unscathed, untouched, did whatever he wanted and, you know, died a millionaire. So there is there justice? No, not really. But um, it's a very interesting standpoint from the true crime aspect of how many people knew well there were supposedly cops on the payroll so what were they going to do nothing uh these women needed jobs 
So what were they going to say? Nothing. Cause they'd be fired. Um, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm sort of glossing over this. I didn't really want to talk about it a whole lot because it just, these are one of those situations where you just get pissed off talking about it because what, what the fuck, what the hell, <laughs> why was this allowed to go on for so long? Why were so many people complicit in this? But then again, that's just sort of the way of the world is that everyone's complicit until they're not. And then everyone wants to judge everybody else for things that they did decades ago. So, I mean, what are we going to do about it now in 2022 now that Hugh Hefner is dead? Uh, nothing. So, uh, so there's that. <laughs> and that's on A&E if you want to watch it or you don't want to watch it. You could probably guess what happened. And each episode's like an hour long. And a lot of it is it's just talking. It's just talk, 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 talk. And it's easy to sort of when you're hearing this stuff over and over and over and over, it's just these awful stories, awful stories, awful stories. You sort of start to disconnect after a while and it just sort of is like, wah, 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 wah. you know, like, like the teacher from Peanuts, you just sort of stop listening to all the details. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Um, <laughs> uh, went through the entire season of Dope Sick uh, based on, Michael Keaton's when recently he won for his role in in the show. So it's on Hulu and it's about the opioid epidemic that um, started when, well, I guess it didn't start, but it's focused around Oxycontin, right? And Oxycontin was released in 1996. And so this whole show is about how Oxycontin was released, how it was able to be released how it started to take down, you know, thousands of people. And then it shows like the U.S. Uh, Attorney General trying to take them down. Um, the FDA is trying to excuse how they were able to get it released. I mean, it, it, and <laughs> the show is crazy. Okay, you cannot, first of all, you can't be on your phone with this in the background. You have to put your phone down because this show, literally each episode, there's like eight eight or nine episodes, right? It just goes back and forth. So you're like in the 90s, you're in 2006, you're in 2002, you're in the 90s, you're in 2006, you're in 2005, you're in 2001. And it literally just goes back and forth. And it's really hard to keep track of what is going on at what time because it's just, it's just sliding all over the place, right? So... You're just desperately trying to keep up with in what order did all of this shit happen. <laughs> and uh, so Michael Keaton plays uh, a very small town doctor in a mining town. And uh, he's convinced to start selling this wonder drug, Oxycontin, that's supposed to last for 12 hours. And it, it has, uh, this was the big push that they used. Less than 1% of patients get addicted. Well, obviously, it's an opioid it's going to be addictive and everybody instantly got addicted and it would ravage these small towns to the point where people were dying of overdoses. And it's crazy. The notion that the, so the people who produced Oxycontin, it, it's pharma, Purdue pharma. So this company was started in the late 1800s by two doctors. And in the fifties, the Sackler brothers bought the company and they turned it into this huge thriving drug business, right? 
And in the 90s, Richard Sackler, who was the son of one of the Sackler brothers, his dad was Raymond Sackler, I think his name was. So Richard wants to push this new wonder drug as far across the world as he can. So there's this whole underlying scheme, right? Which is obviously criminal, where they are in bed basically with the FDA. So they get someone in the FDA to approve this stuff. And then the person at the FDA leaves FDA and gets hired by Purdue Pharma. So they have a job now that they've passed this wonder drug that's going to kill all these people, right? (laughs) And it's crazy to me that this happened and nobody in the Sackler family is held responsible. Like they have no liability for all of these lives that they've destroyed. All these people that overdosed, they don't care. Like none of them had to sell a house or a car or forego a vacation as punishment. And Purdue Pharma actually uh, declared bankruptcy a few years ago. And they did that in order to protect the family so that now that they've declared bankruptcy, Uh, you can't sue the members of the family. So none of them have really lost out. It's just, it's insane to me. But so the show doesn't really focus necessarily on the Sacklers as much. I mean, it does touch on the family and the family dynamics. But um, generally speaking, it's mostly about the actual lives that are affected by Oxycontin. Um, There's a girl named Betsy who... Um, is part of this small town, small mining town, and she gets hurt in the mines. So she's prescribed the Oxycontin for um, a back injury, right? And based on what Purdue Pharma has told them, it's fine. It doesn't, she won't get addicted. It's going to last for 12 hours. So she takes one to sleep. She takes one during the day. She should be fine. Well, obviously that's not even close to reality. And she starts needing higher doses, higher doses, higher doses. Well, Purdue Pharma is pushing like, oh, there's no limit to how much you can take. You can just take it all day long. They come up with a 20 milligram, 40 milligram, 80 milligram. And they they start trying to push like, we're going to release a 160 milligram, which 160 milligrams of any opioid is literally insane. You know, I so when I was in high school, I got pneumonia and um, I my ribs were in a lot of pain from coughing so much. And uh, so my doctor prescribed me codeine, which is a narcotic. And I'd never taken it before. Obviously, you know, my family didn't know anything about stuff like this. And um, I remember that, you know, they told me, <laughs> you, you take it in the day, right? Like you take it in the morning and then you take it at night to go to sleep. So I took it before I went to school. So I took it and then I drove my car to school. I went all day at school and then drove home. And afterwards, I remember thinking like, I didn't remember that entire day of school. I was so out of it on this narcotic. I I literally couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you how I got to school. I couldn't tell you what I did at school all day that day. And this was when I was a teenager. So imagine as an adult, like you're just told, okay, yeah, you can take this medicine, no problem. And (laughs) 
people are getting in their cars and driving. They're going to work and trying to perform their office duties. I mean, it's insane to me. And so they tell all these stories about people who were prescribed just normal prescriptions and they're overdosing just taking it normally because they were mixing it with, you know, their antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine, which was given together to help sort of combat some of the symptoms that people were getting. And they're just getting wiped out. And I, I had Googled it and it said in 1996, right, when Oxycontin first came out, there were 316,000 prescriptions across the U.S., by 2001 and 2002, so like only within five, four or five years, right? There were 14 million prescriptions across the United States. That's how much it changed and how much people were getting addicted immediately. And there were no repercussions for it. So this is, it's definitely a really, really sad show, obviously, anything to do with addiction. You know, if you've ever been around someone who's an addict with anything, drug addict, alcoholic, anything, you know, it changes their personality. It's hard to be around. It it destroys relationships. It destroys friendships. And ultimately, the Sackler family have never really been held responsible for it. And that, to me, is one of the big biggest crimes that we've had in this country is this family, their lives haven't changed at all, despite all of the havoc that they've wrecked across the United States. And especially in these small towns where people were doing these really hard labor intensive jobs, getting injured, doing them. And they were sort of the guinea pigs that this was pushed on and how many lives that it destroyed. Um, Yeah. So, yes, (laughs) it's really sad. It's really hard to watch, Um, but it's a really good story. I think it's an important story that everybody watches. You know, it definitely. So I take um, a medication like a sleep aid and I take an anti-anxiety medicine. And it's definitely one of those things where you're like, wow, how much am I taking? How much medicine am I taking? Am I taking too much medicine? You definitely start some self-reflection after watching it. Like every time I open a pill case, I'm like, do I really need this? (laughs) But okay, like, yes, my medication. Yes, I specifically need it. I don't abuse my medication. I'm very careful. I don't mix alcohol with my medication. Um, But I think it's really easy to sort of slip into that mindset of like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But the reality is you can overdose being just fine, just mixing the wrong things. And um, and it's definitely still a problem in the United States. Um, So then also last weekend, I went to go see Cyrano in an actual movie theater, which I hardly do anymore, but I still love it. Uh, so I went to AMC and saw this, um, musical. I didn't know it was a musical the first time I saw a trailer for it. It wasn't until like two or three trailers later that I saw that there's actual singing in it. So this was, okay, the, so Cyrano is, the movie is based on a play that was written at the end of the 1800s, I believe, um, by a guy named Edmund Rostand and, uh, 
Cyrano de Bergiac, it was an actual person, but the play is obviously a little more romanced. And the story of him is basically the the play, right? Cyrano had like this really giant, unattractive nose. And he felt because of his nose, he was unable to find love with, uh, in the play, it's his cousin, Roxanne, right? So this movie, instead of having a guy with a grotesque nose that they obviously parodied in the Steve Martin movie, Roxanne from the eighties, if you saw that, that's the, that's the story of Cyrano. But this was, to me, it felt way more closer to the actual play. Uh, Peter Dinklage stars as Cyrano. And instead of Roxanne being his cousin, it's just a girl he, quote, happened to know from the town they grew up in. Uh, the movie's directed by Joe Wright. And he's the guy who did The Good Pride and Prejudice, the one with Karen Knightley. And um, Roxanne... The part of Roxanne is played by Haley Bennett, who is Joe Wright's partner. So wonder how she got the part right. But she was okay. I mean, I think she she sang well. I didn't think she was necessarily this gorgeous, ethereal Roxanne that the play sort of acts like she's this, you know, drop dead, amazing goddess of a woman that, you know, Cyrano longs for. And also... There's a 20-year difference between Haley Bennett and Peter Dinklage, which, come on, man. <laughs> like, we really couldn't find people that were a little bit closer in age. It's still, it's got to be like one of those kind of creepy relationships where it's, you met her when she was literally a child. So this is kind of weird and unfortunate situation. Uh, but the songs were decent the story is moving. And I really do. I think that they did a good job with Christian. I think that they did a good job of um, staying really close to the original story. So if you don't actually know the play, if you watch the movie Cyrano, it's actually, I I think, pretty authentic. Uh, I think Peter Dinklage is amazing in everything that he does. Uh, I don't know necessarily if his... I, I don't want to like shit talk about his singing because apparently he used to be in a band but I don't know it was a little off it felt a little uncomfortable not quite as uncomfortable as in Mamma Mia when uh, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan started belting out a song and everyone went oh okay this was really unnecessary and kind of cringeworthy it wasn't like that but it was still kind of like uh, I don't know so maybe if it wasn't a musical maybe if it was just the theatrics, I think I would have enjoyed it better. Some of the music sort of uh, disconnected me from the story a little bit. But um, there were a few songs that I really enjoyed. And the choreography was really beautiful. Um, the scenes were done. It, it almost felt like you were actually watching a play to see some of the scenes just because it was very close in all of the scenes, there weren't a lot of far away things. So it kind of felt like you were in the room with them, like an actual play, which I appreciated. Um, anyways, it's a good story, I guess, sort of a chick flick, but, um, but good nonetheless. Uh, and then, okay. So I really wanted to talk about this movie that I watched on Hulu called fresh. And I, <laughs> it, 
I'm like at a loss for words. I have like all these notes and I don't even know where to start. Okay, so Fresh, which is on Hulu, it was written by a woman named Lauren Kahn. It was directed by a woman named Mimi Cave. And it stars Sebastian Stan, which was obviously a lure for me. Like, oh, okay, well, I didn't particularly enjoy Pam and Tommy, but maybe I'll enjoy this, you know, little small town horror movie, right? This movie is fucking bananas. <laughs> so it's definitely a focus on female dating from the woman's point of view and how it can definitely go tits up really fast. But it felt so relatable and not necessarily like the crazy ass shit bananas horror parts, but the interactions with guys felt real. And um, so the main character... Uh, played by Daisy Edgar Jones. Her character's name is Noah. And she has a friend named Molly who's like her best friend. And they text each other back and forth all the time. And something that I really related to was she and her friend, like when they sign off from each other, it's like, I love you. I love you more, right? Um, and I actually do that with one of my friends. Like one of my friends and I, we have this back and forth where we say like, I love you. I love you more. And the other one says, I know. So later on in the movie, there's a part where Molly's signing off and she says, like, I love you. And she gets a text back that's just a heart. And she knows immediately that's not her friend. And I was like, wow, that's so real. Because if I said that to one of my friends, like over a text, and she didn't send the usual response back, you would instantly know there's something wrong. Something's afoot here, <laughs> right? So... I definitely appreciated that viewpoint that girls, and I don't know, maybe guys do this too. I don't know. I don't know how guys text each other, but women definitely sort of have these inside joke sort of things that they have with each other. And it's like a bonding thing, I guess. I don't know. So this story is Noah going on these Tinder dates, right? And so she goes on the date with this guy and it's a complete fucking disaster. The guy's an asshole. He's so rude. And then when she rejects him, he, of course, is like, you know, fuck you, you fucking bitch. I didn't like you anyway, of course, because that's exactly what happens is like the guy is an, a complete piece of shit. But if you reject him, then you're the horrible person, right? Because you should want him. Okay. So she's deflated and she goes grocery shopping and while she's grocery shopping, she meets Sebastian Stan, who is sort of funny and hits on her a little bit. And they sort of have not like an immediate connection, I would necessarily say. But, you know, he's definitely step up from the Tinder date. So they go out for drinks and, you know, everything's great. He's this guy named Steve. Steve's a doctor and he does reconstructive surgery, like plastic surgery and helps, you know, people who have been injured and blah, 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 blah. And so they hook up, obviously. And uh, he's like, hey, we should go away for the weekend, which <laughs> is like one of those things where you're just like, er, maybe I shouldn't do this. But what's the worst that could happen, right? So she tells her friend, Molly, right? I'm going to go away for the weekend. And Molly's like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't even know this guy. What the fuck are you doing? Because that's literally what all of our friends would be saying. 
And, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, I'll text you when I get there. It's fine. Blah, blah, blah. So then Noah, like, sort of disappears. And over time, Molly gets concerned and she's, like, trying to text her and she's getting weird responses back. So she starts trying to figure out who Steve is. So meanwhile, they go away for the weekend into this, like, mountain... I guess like woodsy forest home. Okay. I don't know much about California, so I don't really know where this was supposed to be located, but apparently it's literally away from all civilization, but it's like this million dollar type house back in the woods. Right. Cause he's a doctor. So they share a drink and while Noah's drinking it, she starts to get kind of hazy and passes out and she wakes up and she's like handcuffed in a room So the room is just like completely bare. There's just like, you know, a pallet on the floor and a toilet. And she's like chained up in this room. Well, turns out that Steve kills women and sells their body parts for people to eat. So basically he's a butcher of women. So he's selling off parts of them like their heart or, you know, parts of their leg. I mean, he's basically taking women like cattle and butchering them and keeping them in freezers and selling bits of them. But he has to do it like pieces at a time because they're worth more if the woman's still alive when he sells them. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you think about it, but it's still grossly horrific. And uh, Noah discovers there's a woman in like one room over named Penny who also fell for the same thing and doesn't have close family. So obviously doesn't have a lot of people looking for her. And over time during the movie, you find out that (laughs) he's been doing this for a while now. And there's like a whole bunch of women that he's killed. Well, meanwhile, her friend Molly discovers that his name isn't Steve. It's Brandon or Brendan. And she goes to his house and like, was going to confront him, but there's like a wife and kids there. So then she's like, Oh, this guy's having an affair. That's why it's so secretive. That's why he's got another name. Right. And she goes to confront the wife and tell her, Hey, your husband's cheating on you. And Steve comes home or Steve, Brendan, whatever the hell his name is, comes home. And is like, she's (laughs) sorry. I'm getting too excited talking about this. And Molly's like, where's Noah? You know, what happened to Noah? And he goes, Oh, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And Molly goes to leave and gets knocked out. Right. So apparently the wife, quote unquote wife, I guess it's his wife is an accomplice to this situation. Uh, and Molly wakes up. She's also now in the house. And, um, there's a part where Noah had tried to escape and as punishment, like he, (laughs) He like saws off her butt, right? (laughs) Like he saws her butt and then he sells it or whatever. And uh, Penny, the girl who's next door, like loses a leg while they're there. And um, anyways, I I definitely want to spoil this for you. So if you want to watch the movie, stop listening right now. But if you're not going to watch the movie, you don't like horror movies or you don't like gruesome horror movies because that's definitely what this is. Um, here we go. So we're going to talk about it. (laughs) So, um, Noah 
and Molly and Penny end up escaping, right? Noah gets loose and um, she they she ends up fighting with Sebastian Stan. Okay. She basically tricks him by pretending she wants to have sex with him. And while they're having sex, like she's going down on him and she essentially just bites his nuts like right the fuck off, which good for you, girl. I mean, seriously, like <laughs> who does that? That's awesome. And so severely injures her him enough that she can get the keys and like unlocks herself and escapes. And he's so badly injured, he's not able to catch up with her right away. And she's able to like get Molly, get Penny and um, they go to the kitchen. There's like a showdown where they're all sort of trying to fight him, but they're obviously somewhat incapacitated. So it really does take the three of them to gang up in order to knock him out. Right. And uh, <laughs> they're able to get out of the house and <laughs> they end up getting his gun and they shoot him. Right. But his wife shows up and there's a part at the very end where Molly, <laughs> she's like, she has this shovel and she's like beating his wife with the shovel. And she's like, I asked you for help. Bitches like you were the fucking problem. And it was so amazing. It was like the best part of the whole movie was this redemption part where it was like, yeah, bitches like you are the fucking problem. <laughs> we need to all be in this together and take care of these asshole guys who keep getting away with this fucking bullshit, right? So it it is definitely a great horror movie for, I guess, single people. It's maybe a little bit of a, a warning. Hey, maybe don't go away with a guy that you just met because he might straight up murder you. Uh, which, I mean, should be common sense if you're a true crime person, which I think <laughs> most ladies are today in 2022. Uh, but maybe do a little bit of a background check on Steve, the doctor who seems too good to be true because he's probably too good to be true. So I, <laughs> I definitely recommend watching fresh. It's hilarious. It's a dark comedy, but there are so many parts where it's like, it's really difficult to watch. Like there's a part in the movie where Noah's trying to gain, um, Steve's trust and is like asking him questions about these girls that he murders and asking him about eating humans. And he actually like prepares a dish for her to eat. I mean, she throws it up later, but she's like eating and she's like asking all these questions like, oh, so who is this? And he's like telling her about this girl and um, OK, so now what what part of her am I eating? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, God, it just it gives you the chills watching it. And there were parts where I was starting to get like super anxious. And I found myself sort of like, you know, you kind of shake your hands like, oh, God, what's going to happen? And there was definitely one or two parts where I had to just walk out of the room real quick because I was like, OK, I can't watch this part. I can't watch this part. I have a really hard time with um like gruesome horror movies that are just, uh, I, it's like the movie Hostel. Anytime they inflict like physical damage to a person, it's it's very difficult for me to watch because it's too, it feels too real. And I, it's not like it's too far necessarily, but I think those are the scariest things is when it actually could be real. 
Those are the things that are terrifying to me. Because I don't want to say that I'm a crazy conspiracy theory person, but I absolutely think that this shit could be happening around the world right now. And maybe we just don't know about it. We just haven't caught that person yet. But there's 100% at least one serial killer in the world who is like killing women and probably eating them, right? Like Jeffrey Dahmer, right? So, um, anyways, okay. It's a really good movie. <laughs> it's got this really slow build to the horror. Um, and it's definitely, there's so many funny parts. Um, Daisy Edgar Jones is amazing in the movie. Um, Sebastian Stan is equal parts funny and terrifying in the movie. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really great. It was a new sort of idea. It was something that I hadn't necessarily seen before. I mean, obviously there's movies where people are killed and eaten, blah, blah, blah. But to put this whole like new age spin on like making it part of dating, it, it was just, it was very enjoyable and I liked it. So you should definitely watch it. Go watch it. Go watch it. Go watch it. And then, okay, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about was something that I read online at the beginning of the week. And it was the actor Sam Elliott commenting on the movie The Power of the Dog, which I, I'm i not sure if I talked about that on here. Um, I watched it when it first came out, and I really liked the movie because I enjoy movies that feel like they could be real, right? And Sam Elliott went on Mark Maron's podcast. And I guess Mark Maron brought up the movie The Power of the Dog because Sam Elliott did a lot of Westerns, right? And Sam Elliott, this is what he said. He said, you want to talk about that piece of shit? And um, <laughs> he described the director as being brilliant and loved her previous work. But he questioned uh, her perspective and he said, what does a woman from down there like New Zealand know about the American West? And why did she shoot this movie in New Zealand and call it Montana and say, this is the way it was. That rubbed me the wrong way, pal. And uh, he said the common depiction of American cowboys as macho men is a myth and that in his experience, cattle ranching is a family operation. And so... <laughs> Oh, and then he likened the Cowboys to Chippendales dancers and said they're all running around in chaps and no shirts. There's all these allusions to homosexuality throughout the fucking movie, right? And I have so many problems with this fucking bullshit, okay? First of all, Sam Elliott was born in 1944 in California and lived in Portland. So not fucking anywhere near a Montana ranch. The power of the dog is is set in 1925 and it was written by Thomas Savage who was a closeted gay man who he was born in 1915 and in 1920 he moved with his mom to Montana so this book was written by a closeted gay man who lived in Montana at the time this book was set so who do you think would know better about writing about cattle ranching in Montana in the 20s than someone who fucking lived in Montana in the 20s as a closeted gay man. Are you fucking serious right now? And I think it's important to note that even though Sam Elliott believes that 
cowboys couldn't possibly be gay, that gay people are in all aspects of life. It's not like only artists are gay or only book writers are gay. Like gay does not define your profession. And I think that The Power of the Dog does a really amazing job at showing how difficult it is to be a man who has to suppress his sexuality based on where he lives, the time he lives, and what is quote-unquote expected of him in his section of the world. And for Sam Elliott to, I mean, even if he was like 20 when he visited a cattle ranch for the first time, that would have been like in the 60s, okay? So not necessarily the same experience as in the 20s, where it was way more isolated. And there was 100% gay people back in the 20s, and they absolutely could have lived that life. So for him to speak on it like that was unheard of or crazy, that rubbed me the wrong way, pal. So maybe we need to hear less from old crusty white men and stop asking their opinions about stuff where they're not necessarily qualified to answer. Uh, but, you know, that's just my two cents. And who am I? I am a cis white girl from Georgia who's never lived on a cattle ranch. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it's just because I am not necessarily as ignorant as Sam Elliott, but I definitely think it's important to note that his entire opinion is crap and maybe he should take several seats. So <laughs> that is literally all I have to talk about uh, this week. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you go watch Fresh and Dope Sick and I hope you enjoy them. And if you do, drop me a line. Let me know what you thought. Send me some requests of things you want me to talk about on here. And uh, I will hopefully be recording again this coming Wednesday. And I can't wait to talk to you about Red Panda and um, some other stuff. So... Anyways, all right, enjoy your day. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for joining me and be sure to check out the podcast on social media. Talk to y'all soon. Bye.